All right, Genesis chapter 46. Now, there is in here a lot of genealogy that I will read now, and then we'll try to not get bogged down too much in it in a minute. But I will read it now, just because I, I do think it's important. I think it's okay that sometimes when we read these things, I don't know where you're at in your Bible reading plans, but sometimes when you end up in, say, First Chronicles, and uh, there's nine-ish chapters of genealogy that your eyes can start to roll back in your heads, and I sympathetic mind do as well sometimes. So I'm going to read it, but I, I want to remind you that they are important. Now, it's not going to be a major focus of what we read this morning. If we came back to this genealogy again in Exodus 1, maybe we would talk about it a little bit more. Uh, but this genealogy that's listed here does reappear multiple times throughout Scripture. And it's interesting always to see how they change and who's there and who isn't. And, and eventually, of course, a large portion of this genealogy gets reproduced in Matthew 1. But I would say two things about genealogies as we read them that I think is, is important for us to consider. We live in the genealogy. Right? Most of the time, we're not the people that would be the headline story. Sometimes in Genesis, that's rather a good thing. I'm, you know, I'm glad that not all of you feature in all of these stories. Right? But where we are, where, where our normal lives honoring the Lord are, they, they're the, the little notes in the genealogy. I mean, very rarely is there anything more to, to our story in biblical terms then in the sense that Paul says in a, in a sermon in Acts uh, about, uh, I think about David, that when he, had, uh, when he had finished out his years, when he'd accomplished God's purpose in his generation, then he died, right? That's generally where we live as we accomplish by God's grace his purpose in our generation, and then we die. And for a grand view of history, your name is probably not, and my name is probably not much more than an asterisk and a genealogy. And yet, I would remind you how critically God takes these things. See, it's you and I who quickly move past every name in the genealogy. Oh, here we go with the unpronounceable aunts and uncles in Hebrew again, right? We, we are the ones who find those things unimportant. It's not that way with our God. He finds every detail of these things important. He works out a plan that isn't headlined by just a couple people, but that is driven by faithfulness in every generation. And I would say that's one of the true masterpieces of his wisdom and his power on display. Consider this, we've talked about it before, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture. You know, when you have a prophet, say I was reading yesterday, Jeremiah, uh, and Jeremiah comes onto the scene and we know that his words are inspired and that they are at both God's divine word, but also the human production of Jeremiah and his place and his time and his personality and his wisdom and all the things that God has granted him as a created person and, and a faithful person in God's world. Jeremiah doesn't stand on his own in God's thinking. Jeremiah is the son of someone else who's the son of someone else who's the son of someone else who's born in the right place with the right history, the right culture around him. Every detail of Jeremiah's life, every detail of Jeremiah's forebears' lives, every detail of the culture and the time and the place around them are carefully crafted by God's hand to bring about God's glorious purpose. 
God doesn't think the way we do about the genealogies, and aren't we grateful for that? Because it's every one of these people and their faithfulness or their lack of faithfulness and God's wisdom and their place and their time by which God works out his marvelous saving plan for the world. God puts his glory on display, in other words, through the otherwise mundane details of lives that don't appear in Scripture more than in these genealogies. And I think that's very helpful for us. So when you're tempted to just cruise past until we get to the next juicy part, to cruise past the genealogies, remember that's where you live and that's where God's glory is found. He works out his saving plan in every detail and every name and none of them are less important. None of them receive less of his wisdom and attention in caring about his purposes. And so I think it's a great kindness. I think it's a great kindness to be reminded that we don't live in a highlights-only world. Like, you know, Chris will tell you how he loves to watch sports highlights, you know, in the super condensed version where you get, like, the entire previous week of sports in six minutes. And it's just like you don't even see the football being thrown. You just see it being caught. And the guy goes, yeah, and then it skips on to the next thing, right? And sometimes that's the view we take of life, but that's not the way God views our lives. He's with us faithfully in every moment, in every person, in every genealogy. And he's a God that's faithful in that. And I think that's a, a wonderful reminder to us. Also, I think it's, it's unwise to skip past the genealogies, although we are reading carefully to understand what the point of each passage is. We'll demonstrate that in a minute because I think this genealogy is driving a greater point, which is why we're not going to spend a great deal of time here this morning. But it's worth it to remember that all the details in the genealogies are there for a purpose. There's no wasted real estate in the Bible, right? When, when the Bible chooses to dwell on something, it's part of the authorial intent of the scriptures, and we must ask ourselves, why is this here? Why is it so important that we know each one of these people are here? We'll talk about some of the reasons for that. I would just, if you ever want to know how this works out in genealogies in a really fun way, Go into, again, about the time of Jeremiah, actually, when Josiah's on the throne and then after Josiah dies in battle with Pharaoh Necho and stuff, going forward into the time of the, the Judean exile, read through all those genealogies there and, and trace a family with a guy in it by the name of Shaphan. In your English Bibles, it's probably S-H-A-P-H-A-N. I'm not going to tell you the answer to that. Just go read that sometime and... and Trace what God does to this family that is never spelled out in big detail, but if you read through all the little mentions, you get this huge picture of a family through three generations that God uses to preserve uh, righteousness in the kingdom of Judah. It's a really interesting story. So go read that sometime. Pay attention to the authorial intent behind every detail in Scripture. So those are two reasons I think they're important. None of that was planned, so now we're behind and on we go. Uh, so let me read for us beginning in Genesis 46.1. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. 
Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben, Hanach and Palu and Hetzron and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar and Shol, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath and Merari. The sons of Judah, Aaron, Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah, but Aaron Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hetzron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola and Puva, and Job and Shimron. The sons of Zebulon, Sarad and Elon and Jachlil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Now you notice how this is tracing. We've wrapped up one quarter of the family unit with the sons of Leah. The sons of Gad, Ziphion and Hagi, Shuni and Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Arali. The sons of Asher, Emnah, and Ishva, and Ishvi, and Bariah, and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. Okay, so now we've got the next family unit done. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher and Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Mupin, Hupim and Ard. Guess he ran out of creativity on his names there. <laughs> These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. There's another family unit. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the son, or the son of Dan, rather, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, and Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. Okay? There's another family unit. There were seven persons in all. Now a summary. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons all, in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Now he, Judah, now I'm sorry, he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you are our God. You make yourself known to your servants. You encourage, you embolden us, and you surely fulfill your promises. Pray that your word this morning would encourage our hearts for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, to move through this chapter, 
I thought I would give us some keywords again to give us an idea of how this moves. Now it's interesting because we're kind of at the end of the travel logs. We've been bouncing back and forth on the road trip with the brothers and we're getting, we're winding that down. Uh, but the focus has shifted now for the first time in a really long time. The, the, the camera is dwelling again on Jacob. And as we consider Jacob and his departure from the land, I want you to notice God's revelation to Jacob beginning in verse 2. Jacob's relocation, see you can get where we're going now, re, that's a re everything, okay? His relocation beginning in verse 5. And then for the genealogies, I just said reproduction, so there you go. Uh, and then again in verse 28, reunion with Joseph. And then the tricky one at the end, should we call it resolution? Because it brings the whole thing to us end, or because Joseph's coaching them on a job interview, should we say it's a reenactment of their job interview? I like reenactment better, but you can go with whichever one you like, resolution or reenactment. So we'll move through revelation, relocation, reproduction, reunion, and then your choice, reenactment or resolution. You can tell me which one you like better at the end. It's to some extent an anticlimactic chapter because Chapter 45 is so emotionally hard-hitting. It's, it's such a satisfying but tense conclusion to, to chapters and chapters uh, of drama. What will happen with his brothers? What will happen when they know who they've been dealing with? This tension has been building and building. Oh my goodness, we know that they're talking to Joseph. They don't have a clue. What's going to happen when he meets Benjamin again? What's going to happen when they go home with all of the supplies and the wagons and everything else to convince dad? Actually, you know how we lied to you before? Well, we did lie, but actually this time we're not lying because look at these wagons full of stuff to say that Joseph really loves you. I mean, there's so much tension driving through this that then all of a sudden to get a little brief travelogue of Jacob interspersed with, of all things, a genealogy on our way down to Egypt seems a bit anticlimactic. I will confess to you when I turned to study it this week, I thought, well, goodness, where do we go from here? Uh, all the good stuff has happened. But it isn't true. It's never true in the scriptures. All the good stuff hasn't happened yet. And I was so struck by this chapter as I studied it this week to notice some interesting things. See, I had to go back and, and remind myself, now that we're back looking at Jacob, I had to remind myself of Jacob's history a little bit. Notice, as you read and as we move through it this morning, notice Moses' skillful interplay between two names for Jacob. He moves constantly between Israel and Jacob in the narrative. And we'll talk about that while it goes. But I want it to pique your curiosity. I want you to notice it as we trace, trace through here. This constant interplay between his new name, Israel, and his, I don't know what you want to call it, his birth name, Jacob. Do you know, and it's okay if you don't, but do you know where Jacob is when they show up with the wagons and his heart revives? Just a guess. You know where he's at. The first person to say Israel gets a free bagel. He's in the land. Do you know where he's at in the land? It's okay. Do you know where he's at? I didn't either. Because we don't think about this. We just, when we're in our reading plans, we just were like, so they showed up and they went on. But it matters. He's, 
He's living at Bethel because God told him to live at Bethel. Right? Do you remember where Bethel is? It's where as he's leaving the land to, to run away from his brother, he leaves the land to run away from his brother and he takes nothing. It's been months now since we were there, but he takes nothing but his rock pillow. Remember, that's how destitute he is. I'm sure he didn't take it with him, but he has his rock pillow that he sleeps on, you know, in Bethel on the, on the way out of the land. And what happens in Bethel? Well, God, he, that's where he sees the famous vision of the angels going up and down on the ladder. And God tells him, you're going to go out of the land, but I will bring you back and I will accomplish my purposes in you. And then when he comes back and he deals with Esau and then he goes and lives in um, Shechem for a disastrous little bit and then God tells him, go to Bethel and dwell there. You know how he got to Bethel? Where he came from, from as he's moving from Bethel on his way out of the land to get out of town from his brother? Comes from Beersheba. Because Isaac built a well in Beersheba, and wells are really important. Remember, Isaac built wells everywhere, and the king of Gerar kind of chased him around, and then Andrew told us, well, 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 here we are again. And they, you know, they have to conclude a peace treaty, and Isaac establishes his roaming headquarters in the city of Beersheba, which is essentially as far south as you want to live in Israel before it starts looking too much like Egypt, before it starts getting really deserty and a lot less like California. So think about this. Think about this trajectory in Jacob's life. Jacob is the brat at home who's always conniving and scheming, and all his conniving and scheming goes pretty well for him, and we've talked about all of this, until all of a sudden the conniving and scheming doesn't go so well, and Esau is singing himself to sleep at night, saying, I get to kill Jacob. When dad dies, I get to kill Jacob, right? And he has to flee. He has to leave the land that's been promised, that's so central to these promises to his family. He has to run out of that land to go find a wife. But he's a fugitive on the run. And he runs from Beersheba through Bethel out of the land. And God appears to him in Bethel and says, Don't worry, I will bring you back to this land. I will surely fulfill my purposes for you. And then at a certain point while he's with Laban, God tells him it's time to go home. Remember that? And he comes back. And God sends him back to Bethel eventually. And now notice this trajectory. He's leaving again. He's going from Bethel. And as he journeys south, he journeys south back to his father's home base, his, to where he grew up, to his hometown, as it were, back to Beersheba. And he decides, before I leave the land, it, I think in his thinking, it's the southern limit of the land. If you look at a map today of the state of Israel, it's just kind of smack dab in the middle. But in terms of habitable land, it's as far south as they roam. So he gets back to his border hometown, and he knows, when I, when I go past this line, as an old man, he's going to die in 17 years, but he's over 100 years old now. He's like 115, I think, something like that, 120. This is it. I'm leaving the land.